Anicca Vada Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upakituva Nirujanti Te Sang Vupasamo Sukho All compound things are impermanent. They have the nature to arise and pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. <clears throat> so the talk tonight is about anicca, impermanence. <clears throat> Pointing to the truth of anicca appears over and over throughout the Buddha's teachings. On one of the lists, it is one of the four reflections which are said to turn the mind toward the Dharma and away from worldly pursuits and concerns. The first of these reflections, I'd like to tell you what they are. The first of these reflections are reflections on the unavoidable suffering of human life. Then there are reflections on karma, the lawful working of cause and effect in our own lives. The third of the reflections is reflections on the good fortune of hearing the teachings of liberation. You know, we are so steeped in this good fortune that we really take it for granted here in California especially. But this reflection reminds us that even the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the Dharma, are subject to impermanence. Last summer I was in Indonesia and had the good fortune to visit um, one of the world's oldest Buddhist stupas in Borobudur. Perhaps some of you have been there. It's truly a magnificent and awesome stupa, very large and obviously built over many years with a great deal of care and attention to the teachings because the whole life of the Buddha is portrayed in, in stone carvings all around the, the bottom of the stupa. I was unexpectedly uh, kind of touched being there. Right now it's primarily a tourist mecca. But at one time obviously it was a, it was a, a center for a lot of Dharma practice and exploration. So the Dharma itself appears and disappears in different parts of the world at different times. So we can reflect on our good fortune that we have so much right here. The fourth of the reflections is the reflection on impermanence itself. My, the words I'm using lately are ceaseless change. Ceaseless change. And what's interesting is the invitation to explore the truth of this not as abstract theory, 
but really to look into our own experience and see the truth of this as it unfolds moment to moment in our own minds and in our own bodies. You know, there are a lot of teachings in the Buddhist tradition that we may find ourselves wondering about and feel a kind of um, interest in teachings on no self. That really gets our interest going. Teachings on emptiness. Teachings on dependent origination. We are particularly fascinated with those kinds of teachings which seem so uh, far from our usual experience and seem to hold perhaps the key to what we are looking for. But really, the teachings on impermanence are very profound. It is said that understanding deeply the nature of impermanence is one of the doorways to liberation. It actually wakes us up to the way things really are, beyond our ideas of how we think they are or how we might wish them to be. So tonight I'm not going to really tell you anything that you don't know. I mean, change is all around us. Yet, I hope that this talk will encourage you to look more deeply into the truth of this in your own hearts and minds and bodies. When we talk about impermanence, we in a way are talking about time. What is time? What if time were to stand still? What if nothing ever changed? There's a little book called Einstein's Dream that I'd like to read a passage from. He plays with time and imagines a place where time stands still. At the place where time stands still, one sees parents clutching their children in a frozen embrace that will never let go. The beautiful young daughter with blue eyes and blonde hair will never stop smiling, the smile she smiles now, will never lose the soft pink glow in her cheeks, will never grow wrinkled or tired, will never get injured, will never unlearn what her parents have taught her, will never think thoughts that her parents don't know, will never know evil, will never tell her parents that she does not love them, will never stop touching her parents as she does now. And at the place where time stands still, one sees lovers kissing in a frozen embrace that will never let go. The loved one will never take his arms from where they are now, will never journey far from his lover, will never fail to show his love, will never become jealous, will never fall in love with someone else, will never lose the passion of this instant in time. It's interesting to contemplate eternity. What if we were telling you over and over again, find your best moment of meditation and hold on to it? 
Don't let it go. Make it last for eternity. What would that be like? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your bent, we are not frozen in eternity, and we live very much in time, in constant change. The shortest version of this talk would be, you were born, you are now living, you will die. We don't know when or how, but you will. End of talk. (laughs) But that doesn't seem very helpful, does it? The Dalai Lama once, in talking about impermanence, said it's not enough just to hear about impermanence or observe it happening to other people or, or see it on the news. We have this sort of ingrained denial embedded in our consciousness. He said just one single insight is not enough to dispel it. It requires a long process of deepening our insight into the truth of constant change. So in our mindfulness practice, we do this by attending to our experience in this immediate, direct way, seeing the unfolding of our own mind and body moment to moment, directly. There are two different ways that we can attend to our experience. One way is to look at the content of our experience, the ongoing story we tell ourselves about who we are and how we're doing, and if we like it or if we don't, and if it's good or if it's bad. You know this story? This story lives as an idea a fiction which we call me. It lives as an idea separate in some way from the reality of our moment-to-moment experience. The second way and the way that we encourage on retreat of attending to our experience is by bringing our attention to the level of the process, the moment-to-moment process of breathing, hearing, sensing, thinking, feeling, emotions, moods, arising and passing in a constant dance of change. In this, we have the opportunity then to see how nothing which arises in the mind or body is as solid or enduring as our story sometimes tries to make it. The universal, ongoing story of all of our lives is this. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. 
Now, we all know this. This is not news. But we don't often let it in. Some of us, despite the evidence to the contrary, still kind of live thinking that aging, death, and illness only happen to the other people. Or we think, well, I'm very young now and I don't want to think about being old. It's just too depressing. I'll think about it when I get there, if I get there. Or we may assume that because we've been healthy in the past, we will always be healthy. Well, maybe or maybe not. Maybe we're startled when we see an old childhood friend and, my goodness, they look so old. Or maybe we're startled when we see a face in the mirror which looks like our mother's or our father's and we realize it's ours. We know things change, but we're still surprised when they do change. And particularly when it's us it's happening to. The other night, Robert mentioned this practice called meditating on the 32 parts of the body taught in this tradition of Buddhism. Contemplating all the constituent parts of the body in all their gory details. It's meant to lessen our attachment to this body as me, as mine. Well, 20 years ago, 20 some years ago, when I was introduced to this practice, I really had a hard time relating to it. I was young, I lived in California, it didn't, you know, it just seemed like, why would I want to think about that? (laughs) Now I've discovered, as I am 20 years further on in my aging process, that whether I like it or not, I am made to contemplate all of these parts. The 32 parts are coming to my attention almost daily. (laughs) The hair, the skin, the bones, the joints, the teeth, the blood, the hormones. Whereas once I might have taken them for granted, now I am beginning to contemplate them as they change in my very own body. The changes that we see as we age don't only happen in the body, but we can also observe them in the mind as well. Just as the memory in one's computer can be wiped out, so evidently (laughs) can human memory. You've probably heard this story. I got it from Jack many years ago, but I haven't heard it recently, so I'm daring to tell it, even though I stole it from the master over here. It's a story about Nasruddin who uh, went to a psychiatrist and uh, Nasruddin said, my, well, the psychiatrist said, what's, what's up? And Nasruddin said, my problem is I can't remember anything. And the psychiatrist said, oh, well, how long has this been going on? And Nasruddin says, how long has what been going on? <laughs> this is some... This has sometimes been called uh, menopause mind, or there's a new phrase called senior moment, which also describes how the memory seems to go on hold at times. 
Or there is the mystery of Alzheimer's disease, the former president who no longer remembers that he once lived in the White House, a world-famous painter who has no memory of ever having painted. Very mysterious. These kinds of facts bring our reflections home. And we realize that what we rely on in our memory as the very basis of our sense of identity, our self-image, is highly unreliable and subject to impermanence. We can view these um, facts with alarm or see these changes as an opportunity for wise reflection while we still have our wits about us. On the impermanence of one of the objects we hold most dear in this world, our very own body and mind. Many years ago, in the month of March, my father died. I was only 16 years old, and I thought to mention it because this weather reminds me so much of that time. He died unexpectedly. He was quite a young man in his 50s. And he died in this, in this spring, in this time of spring. And, you know, as I was 16 years old, and of course it was a, a, a life-changing experience for me, never having experienced death before. I remember tremendous grief, a tremendous sense of abandonment and loss and fear and confusion because uh, it seemed from what I got from the adults was that this was somehow a terrible tragedy, a terrible mistake. It sort of wasn't supposed to happen, a father dying and leaving his family. It wasn't very helpful, the uh, attitudes that I kind of picked up from those around me. Strangely, what was in some way rather comforting was noticing spring, noticing that even with my loss of my father, that life was continuing. There was this sense of a bigger life than was just about my story continuing. The forsythia coming out, the pussy willows, the cherry blossoms, in some way that I couldn't have said, that fact held me during that time period. And so every March I'm reminded, in a way, of that same sense of life continuing. Twenty years later, after I had been doing some, or more than twenty years later, after I had been doing some intensive retreats, I began to know in a different way, in a, a deeper and more intimate way, how we are held through constant change. 
through the practice, this practice of mindfulness, I came to a deeper understanding of how this nurturing, wholehearted attention that we are cultivating here becomes a nurturing presence through all the changes of our lives. It becomes a living presence, a constant nurturing presence. Perhaps it is what Krishnamurti was referring to when he, when he named the all-pervading benediction which is always going on. But even though we live in this world of constant change, there is this all-pervading benediction which is always going on. One of the descriptions the Buddha gave of this world and one of the more beautiful and poetic descriptions that point to this quality of impermanence is, Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a rainbow, and a dream. Such beautiful imagery. Part of the beauty is in our knowing of its fragility, its fleeting momentary appearance, the coming together of very particular conditions, appearing and disappearing. And it also evokes a sense of wonder when we look back on our own lives. And it all does seem rather dreamlike. Your childhood, your first day at school, your parents, your childhood friends, your all the drama of high school, your going away from home for the first time, entering college, your first marriage, or your, your, your family, your... <laughs> Perhaps only marriage. If you're, if you're into permanence, I'm, this is a talk on impermanence. Uh, Freudian slip. Sometimes, you know, in our lives we look back and, you know, we can think of all these pleasant conditions of life and we wish that perhaps they had lasted. Or sometimes we may look back on our life and think of all the difficulties we've gone through and feel some relief that, that's, that they're over, they're gone. So impermanence, you know, is our ally when things are pleasant and it is... I mean, not our, our enemy when things are pleasant, and our ally when things are unpleasant. But whether pleasant or unpleasant, it all passes away. A mirage, a dream, a rainbow, appearances coming together as a result of particular conditions and then breaking apart. 
Sometimes in our world, in this play of causes and conditions, it only takes one thing to change and our whole world changes. A sudden illness, a car accident, a house burning down, a death. The athlete is suddenly an invalid. The wife is suddenly the widow. The millionaire is suddenly the pauper. The beloved child is suddenly the orphan. When any of these happen, our whole world shifts. We are suddenly in a new story, a new role with different emotions, different thoughts. Who we thought we were is revealed to be quite illusory, only real in relation to very ephemeral changing conditions. So we can reflect on these changes that we observe all around us and allow them in, really allow them to penetrate. None of us is immune to sudden changes in fortune or circumstance. What prevents us from seeing impermanence as a central truth in our lives? Billy Holiday put it this way, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. Do you see that? To die means to let go. And when we are caught in wanting heaven or another object of craving, we are believing in a fantasy of fulfillment. We believe very much that our well-being is dependent on the attainment of the object of our desire. And so we become very focused and purposeful. We may feel that our life finally has meaning and direction. We attribute a kind of solidity and permanence to what we are desiring, to the object that it inherently does not have because it too is in the process of change. When we are wanting, we go into a kind of deluded trance state. Sometimes we get what we want, sometimes we don't. But the fulfillment of whatever our desire is, is only momentarily satisfied. Then another desire arises, and another, taking us again into a seeking mode. And the cycle continues on and on. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, the rain could turn to gold, and still your thirst would not be slaked. Desire is unquenchable and ends in tears. Beautiful way to put it. So the Buddha looked and reminded us over and over that this endless, fruitless seeking is a form of suffering, actually. It is our ability to see the futility of this cycle of wanting and seeking and holding on and looking for this satisfaction we can see this and somehow it encourages us perhaps 
to try a different approach, to try the letting go that is recommended. We don't often willingly let go, but sometimes life forces us into a letting go. And then we discover what good news that is. A story. An atheist fell off a cliff. As he tumbled downward, he caught hold of a small tree. There he hung with rocks a thousand feet below, knowing he wasn't able to hold on much longer. Then an idea came. God, he shouted with all his might. Silence. No one responded. God, he shouted again. If you exist, save me. I promise I shall believe in you and teach others to believe. Silence again. Then he almost let go in shock as he heard a mighty voice boom across the canyon. That's what they all say when they're in trouble. (laughs) Oh, no, God, no, he shouted out, more hopeful now. No, no, I'm not like the others. I've already begun to believe, having heard your voice. Now all you have to do is save me, and I shall proclaim your name to the ends of the earth. Very well, said the voice. I shall save you. Let go of the branch. (laughs) Let go of the branch, yelled the distraught man. Do you think I'm crazy? (laughs) Well, we too are often saying to you, let go of the branch. Let go of the holding. And some of you may think that we sound crazy or it sounds quite impossible or too frightening to imagine. But eventually we tiptoe into the waters of letting go. As we begin to notice the futility of holding on, we may also begin to notice a subtle or not so subtle lightening of our load as we release our grasping and resisting when we sit and just allow things to come and go as they will. Achan Sumedho wrote, When you realize non-grasping, you experience true ease, peacefulness, and bliss. But this state of happiness is not the usual one for human beings. We must train the the mind and heart to realize it. Not grasping is not wanting anything to be different than what it is. Not wanting is the beginning of exploring true fulfillment and true freedom. The poet Ryokan was a man very content with not wanting very much. So he could write about this quite authentically. He wrote a poem in which he said, Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer, cheerfully I sing with village children. 
The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. To be that deeply in harmony with just the way it is. When we are caught in endless seeking and wanting, that truth evades us. It also evades us when we get caught up in our belief in ownership, our belief in me and mine, my body, my feelings, my thoughts, my car, my child, my spouse, my meditation, my retreat, my work, my yogi job, my interview. It's rather stunning how we assume ownership so readily. Buddha Dasa says, we do not need to speak of the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha, of any points of doctrine or of the history of Buddhism. We can forget about all those things and begin our studies by examining the words me and mine, or rather the feeling in the heart which gives rise to these words. To truly understand me and mine leads to the extinction of suffering. Another way in which we solidify and freeze our world and the seeing of impermanence becomes obscured is when we have a story, a story we tell ourselves over and over about what kind of person I am or what my problem is. An example might be one if we have an image of ourselves as being a very angry person or a very depressed person or a very agitated person or a very worried person. Then we may think about ourselves as being that way all the time, not noticing that there are many moments when we are not angry, we are not depressed, we're not worried, we're not overwhelmed. Maybe 75% of the time, none of these states is actually present. But we still think about ourselves as being this way. And so we imagine this mental state to be more continuous and solid than it actually is. Seeing ourselves in our actual fluid, impermanent nature frees us from solidifying these kinds of misperceptions of ourselves, these images we hold of ourselves and insist upon. It often happens in interviews, you know, we get reports on terrible things, but are they present now? Oh no, no, that was yesterday. But it's really a problem. And I'm sure it's going to come up again. Well, perhaps, but can we begin to notice that it's not always present? So in this practice of coming into direct relationship with our moment-to-moment experience, we begin to explore our relationship to change. What is our relationship to change? Do we resist? Do we try to hold on? Or can we find a way to be in harmony with this truth? 
many things about the practice are helping us to live more in harmony with the truth of change, are pointing over and over again to the present moment, are pointing over and over again to not getting identified with our story, are encouraging letting go, are encouraging you to notice beginnings, endings, beginnings of the breath, the beginnings of a thought, the beginnings of a sensation, noticing endings, the endings of thought, emotions, sensations, step. Also just our reflections, observing the world, observing the world of nature, noticing the changes you notice in nature while you're here. Reflecting on change every day and just letting it be part of your lived experience. I began this talk with exploring, kind of playing with the notion of time. I'd like to end with another another, uh, way of looking at time. This comes from a, a practitioner from centuries ago, Lehman Pang. He said, the past is already past. Don't try to regain it. The present does not stay. Don't try to hold it from moment to moment. The future is not come. Don't think about it beforehand. With the three times non-existent, mind is the same as Buddha mind. Where is your attention fixated? On the past? On the future? On the present? Let go and realize the mind of non-grasping, the mind of the Buddha. Let's all sit together for a moment. Anicca vada sankara upadavaya damino upakituva nirujanti te sang vupasamo sukho. All compound things are impermanent. They have the nature to arise and pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on March 14, 2001. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.